0: The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay, what I want to do for the first couple of minutes of today's lecture. Well, I guess, looking at the handout, what I want to do is play fill-in-the-blank with this great picture of a, uh, a neuron. I got to talk about the gross structure of the brain last time, but I didn't get to say anything about a neuron. Um, neurons are the, are, are, the um, are brain cells. Um, not all of brain cells, right? This is going to be a, uh, a neuron um, at least... The cells in the brain would be in the category of glia. That's a, a word that comes from the word for glue. And all the years I was learning about this stuff, um, glia kind of got shoved into the category of like support staff, right? They, they, these were the guys who cleaned up after the neurons who were doing all the cool stuff. Um, but it's becoming increasingly clear that, that um, glia have many functions to play in brain. Function uh, beyond the merely vegetative, and if you go into neuroscience, odds are that you 'll end up learning a lot more about glia than I did when i was when I was taking the equivalent course. Um, but the main units the main if you like computational units for the brain are neurons, and so here 's a quick tour of a, a Uh, sort of a canonical typical neuron a typical neuron would collect information either from other neurons or from sense organs through its dendrites the word comes from uh, tree-like because it's branching structure so all these little branches making connections with lots of other neurons or with sense organs in in, say the skin or something like that Um, and um, the information that the the dendrites collect you can think of as being in the form of little pulses of excitation or inhibition. Um, They can be either positive or negative in nature. They flow down towards the cell body here. The neuron is a cell like other cells. It does all those good cellular sorts of things. But for for our purposes, its big job is to act as a sort of a summator and to ask... How excited am I? Am I, you know, if, if I sum up all these pluses and minuses, a, am I excited enough to want to tell other neurons about my level of excitement here? If the excitement passes a threshold, the neuron sends um, an action potential, um, a signal, action po. No, that doesn't look right, does it? Well, potent. There we go. This is why there's a handout, right? Because I can't spell under good circumstances, and I can't spell online at all. Anyway, uh, that should say potential. It sends a signal down the axon. The long wire of the uh, neuron is the axon. Um... That action potential has a couple of important properties. Property one is that it's of a single polarity. There aren't pluses and minuses. There's just a single polarity. Um, and it's a fixed size. A more excited neuron does not produce bigger action potential. So how's a neuron going to tell another neuron that it's more excited? Would you guess? It's going to say make more... more uh, um, ax, uh, uh, action potentials. So it, it's frequency coding; it's ex, its, its level of um, excitement. Um, but action potentials are fixed size and and fixed sign electrochemical signals, powering their way down this uh, axon. These bumps. Wrapping um, around the axon are actually another cell type. They're a form—oops—they're a form of glia known as uh, myelin. They act as it acts as insulation keeping the signal in one neuron separate from the uh, signal in others, and it also acts to speed transmission. There are a number of neurological diseases whose um, cause is not a problem with the neuron, but a problem with the myelin. demyelinating diseases, like multiple sclerosis, for example, um, have their effect because the insulation is breaking down, not because the, the nerve cells themselves are breaking down. Um, that signal reaches the, uh, the arborization of the axon. It you know, then goes off and talks to a bunch of other neurons. Or if this was a motor neuron, it would be talking to muscle. Typically, it does not make a direct electrical contact. If you look at connections between stuff in your computer, those are direct electrical contacts. Not the way things work in the nervous system. In the nervous system, there's a small gap called a synapse. And to signal from one neuron to another, an electrical signal coming down the axon causes chemicals to be released into the gap. They diffuse across the gap and bind to receptors on the other side. And that binding either produces a little plus or a little minus depending on the nature of the chemical, the nature of the receptor, and then the whole process starts again. So you go from uh, an essentially electrical signal to a chemical signal, then back to an essentially um, electrical signal. Um, These so-called neurotransmitter chemicals are the targets of lots of uh, of the drugs that are used to modulate... Um, uh, uh, mental states, like antidepressive drugs, for example. And it, not, not, just, not just drugs over-the-counter, over uh, or uh, not just prescription drugs. Let's see, what are you drinking there? Oh, that's just tea. How boring. Um, the uh, Well, I, mean, I wasn't actually thinking. She was probably putting away a margarita, but um, th- that drug would be working on, on a synapse. The caffeine that you are pouring into your... Uh, uh, brain is is working on neurotransmitter and and, and synaptic uh, properties. That that's that's where you get your chance to affect large numbers of neurons at one time. Um, we'll we'll talk more about that later. Now, if I look at my cute little diagram, yes, you should have been able by now to fill in all the. I wonder what that interesting thing is at the top. Actually, the middle one at the top. What do you figure? Cell. It's not axon. It's not myelin. Those are the two at the bottom right and center. The uh, one on the top right is pointing to synapse. The one at the top left is pointing to dendrites. And the one at the top bottom left is pointing to the cell body. Um, so... Well, no, that's the, the, one, the one on the bottom left, I figure, is pointing to the soma or cell body. Um, I think the one at the top middle is pointing to the whole thing neuron yeah oh maybe ah yes thank you oh somebody's been doing the reading um, yes okay she, she, you you are correct so the top middle is almost undoubtedly pointing to the axon that whole long thing and the the bottom um, what uh, what she's pointing out is that 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 uh, bottom middle one is pointing to these the 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 the, the valleys amongst the bumps, and those are called the nodes of Ronvier. undoubtedly named after, you know, Joe Ronvier. Um, who I don't know anything about but um, what, what the way that myelin speeds up transmission is it makes it possible for the action potential rather than just going down the axon in a nice smooth fashion. It jumps from node to node um, and, uh, and so that's why the nodes are, are interesting. Um, Okay, I'm glad we've solved that. You would have thought I would have thought about that before putting the thing on the handout. Um, okay, any other questions about neurons or things? Yes? So the is, is that where all the boring cell stuff happens? Well, there's boring cell stuff happening all over the place. I mean, we shouldn't, of course, call it boring cell stuff because then guys in, like, course 7 come and, uh, you know, put a hit on us and things. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, the, 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 it's, uh, neurons are cells like other cells, and they have to do all the you know respiratory things that other cells have to do. Um, but you know, our interest in them, of course, is as as little communication and computational units. Yes. What is the model exactly? It's it's another cell type that wraps around the axon, and and acts as as insulation and and. Uh, Speed bumps, I guess. You think of these as the speed bumps, except that they speed things up rather than slowing things down. Um, boy, I bet that just confused matters. Okay. That said, what I want to do today is to talk about why we do anything. It's the general topic of motivation. Um, but... You might, well, you can even ask, ask a question like, why do you eat? And you say, well, you got to eat because if you don't eat, you die. Prove it, Prove it right? <laughs> That's not a stupid point. He meant it as a stupid point, but it's not a stupid point. Does a rat... Uh, why does a rat eat? Does a rat know it's going to die? Is a rat sitting there, you know, with sort of existential concerns about it? <laughs> I don't think so, particularly. And even if it were the case, you know, if you don't eat, you're going to die. Well, so what? you got to answer... I mean, is it why you do anything is a question that requires some sort of an answer. And I will give... A three-part answer. Part one of the answer um, will be that you are a slave to, you do things as a slave to the environment. Part two will be that you do things as a slave, in fact, to your own brain. And part three will be to say, well, parts one and two seemed a little simple-minded. We'd better try and get to a somewhat richer explanation that might explain why um, you're, you're uh, sitting here in a classroom doing this rather complicated activity, since what we'll be talking about is, well, oh, one of the things we'll be talking about is the reason that, uh, is, is the obvious fact that I am a psych professor and not an artist. Um, So you will have to uh, bear with the fact that uh, for present purposes, that is a cat. Um, And and that is a rat. Um, You... You are neither, and the third part of the lecture will be devoted to to, to trying to talk uh, about the the richer set of motivations that you might have, and that even animals um, might have. Well, a good starting place, even if it's a bad bit of art, um, would be... uh, This is an unusually pathetic cat, even for me. Um, The uh, back... In the, uh, shortly before the turn of the last century, uh, Thorndike, Edward Thorndike, up at Harvard, was doing experiments of the following form. He would take cats, who were hungry cats, um, and he would throw them in a box that looked um, sort of like a, a, a packing crate kind of thing. Um, and you know, it slats all over the place, and, and outside of the box is a, 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 a fi- well, a bit of fish, but you know, if I drew a bit of fish, you'd never know what it was, this at least looks sort of like a fish. So there's a bit of fish, you got a hungry cat, you got the fish, um, cat wants fish. Um, what's the cat gonna do? Well, the cat is sort of bouncing off the walls. Um, being uh, annoyed and and, and and agitated and um, and the way this box is set up is well they 're called puzzle boxes because there 's in effect a, 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 a tri- there 's a trick to getting out. It might be that there 's a, a, a lever back here that 's attached to some string and pulley arrangement that lifts a gate over here. And um, if the cat happens to bounce into this uh, lever, um, the gate goes up, the cat goes out, gets the fish. Great. Well, it's a little piece of fish, and he's a hungry cat. And what happens to the cat immediately thereafter is Thorndike grabs the cat again, throws him back in the box. What's the cat do? Well, uh, whatever the cat is doing... What Thorndike is doing is measuring the amount of time that it takes for the cat to get out of the box um, as a function of the, uh, the number of times that the cat's been chucked back in the box. So you've got time as a function of uh, we can call them trials the number of times the cat's been in the box initially takes the cat some amount of time the next time maybe he's a little quicker uh, and you get some sort of a function that eventually gets to some sort of asymptote where you chuck the cat in the box the cat looks at you in a disgusted kind of way goes over to the lever says, <laughs> goes, eats the fish says, okay, we gotta do this again, fine um, this is a learning curve in fact, this is the original use of the term learning curve. When you talk about going up the learning curve and stuff like that, you are invoking Thorndike. Um, what is the cat learning? Um, in the 19th century, and even today, if you go to uh, you know, the animal section of Borders or something like that, there are lots of books that will tell you about the, you know, the, the, the rich mental life uh, of, of your cat. Um, and so on. Thorndike wasn't buying it. What Thorndike, uh, said was, um, that there are good things in the world. We'll call those, uh, reinforcers. Um. They come in two forms. There are positive reinforcers, um. Well, uh, well. here, as an example, if, if, if you tell a joke and people laugh, that's a positive reinforcer. You did something, something good happened. There are also negative reinforcers. Those are also good things. The the, the jargon is unfortunate, but a negative reinforcer is a good thing. Focus on the reinforcement part, not the negative part. A negative reinforcer is um, the the, the, the car alarm is going off, right? You do something that makes that noise stop, right? That's a good thing. The cessation of something unpleasant, like hunger, for example, is a negative reinforcer. It's also a good thing. A bad thing in this jargon is punishment. is called punishment. Right? You tell a joke, the person you're telling a joke, the joke to, takes offense and smacks you. That's punishment. What Thorndike said, what Thorndike formulated, which is undoubtedly on the handout somewhere, is the law of effect yeah, the top of the second page he proposed what, what, what he called the law of effect and he said that something that's followed by a reinforcer a behavior that's followed by a reinforcer is more likely to recur take the joke example if you tell a joke and somebody and, and, and people laugh the next time the opportunity presents itself you are more likely to tell that joke Um, The negative law of effect um, is uh, is or is not on the handout somewhere. Well, yes, there it is, a little further down under where it says punishment. The negative law of effect says if you do something and something bad happens, you're less likely to do it again. You tell a joke, somebody smacks you. The next time the opportunity presents itself, um, unless you're a teenage male, odds are that you won't tell that joke again. The, um, well, it is is a... It, it is a separate problem this is the the, uh, the burping problem right you, you when you were like 12 maybe you discovered you could burp the alphabet or something and your 12 year old guy friends thought it was really great and you've ne- so the behavior got reinforced and unfortunately it takes a lot of snacks before you unlearn that but that's that's actually the next lecture we'll talk about that next week um the, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the handout and realizing that I failed to give you uh, the great bunny example. Um, and, you're going to, uh, and you're going to look at your notes later and, and wonder what this is. But I can use that to illustrate the, uh, this, the same point. My, my, I, I have a rabbit. Anybody want a rabbit? We have a rabbit. It's an accident. You can have him. Um, but anyway, this rabbit, when, we wa- when I go down into the kitchen in the morning, goes berserk. He's thumping up and down in his cage. Why is he... What, what, what's he doing? Well, basically, um, he's signaling that it's time for breakfast, not just any breakfast. You give him rabbit chow, he keeps thumping. He's addicted to Reese's Pieces... Not Reese's Pieces, uh, the Reese's Cereal. He's, it's very sad. <laughs> he's, 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 a, he's a sugar, sugar cereal junkie. Um, and in these terms... What's happened, the way, where his behavior is coming from, what's driving his behavior, is he was making some sort of arbitrary noise at some point. When we fed him, and perhaps when we fed him Reese's cereal the first time, it was really good. It was a positive reinforcer. It made more likely the behavior that he had just been doing. So the next time the opportunity presented himself... He went thump thump thump, being the right time of day anyway. He got more Reese's stuff, and now by this law of effect kind of um, training, he has learned um, that if he goes thump thump thump, we'll remember that it's time for the sweet cereal. And and he gets very disappointed when it turns out that you know that the the, the sweet cereal supply has run out, and we're trying to feed him. Like some health food stuff, he's not not interested. Um, carrots are okay, but only barely. So, why is it that animal? Well, why why? How many of you have cats and dogs? cats or dogs, one or the other you don't have to have both almost all of you can probably tell me something about the, you know, the brilliant intelligent behavior of this dog that doesn't or cat that doesn 't sound like this sort of accidental learning of an association between a behavior and its consequences. This sort of association learning by the way is what i 'll talk about the rules of it i 'll talk about extensively next week um, but why is it that we 're so convinced that animals have um, a much richer intellectual life. Well, one possibility is that they do have a richer intellectual life than this. The other, the one that Thorndike uh, thought he was seeing was what really boils down to uh, selective reporting. Did I put the whole quote on the handout? Nah. Um, what, what Thorndike said is, Dogs get lost hundreds of times. And nobody ever notices it or sends an account to a scientific magazine. But let one dog find his way from Brooklyn to Yonkers and and that fact immediately becomes a circulating anecdote. Thousands of cats, he says, sit on thousands of occasions helplessly yowling and nobody ever writes to his friend the professor about it. But let one cat claw at the knob seemingly in, in uh, um, supposedly as a signal to be let out and straight away that cat becomes the representative of the cat mind what Thorndike thought was that you are that well at least the cat and perhaps by extension you are a slave to your environment the, the contingencies in your environment shape what you do if the environment rewards you for pushing this lever you'll push this lever and the the cleverness, the content of that, is, is, the seeming content of that, is imposed from the outside. It's not there. It's not necessary. You can explain it all. You can explain why you do things purely in terms of um, of these of this law of effect, suitably elaborated. And as I say, the suitable elaboration um, on that will come uh, will come next week. Um, the elaboration, by the way, is known as behaviorism, as a school of scientific, uh, of psychological thought, that says that um, uh, that the explanation for your behavior can be found in the contingencies. Um, that relate your actions to, um, to their consequences in the world and that relate sti- the relationships between stimuli um, stimuli in the world that gets you some distance but what is it that actually makes something reinforcing why should something be reinforcing at all what is it about say food um, that, that you know, why does the cat care that he gets out and, and, and satisfies his hunger. For that, you want to switch to uh, the second form of slavery, which is this notion that you are slave to your, um, to your own brain, in a sense. And uh, the, the, the emblematic experiment for that... Uh, is done some 50 years after Thorndike is working with, the pu- with his puzzle box. And that comes from um, an experiment done by Olds and Milner. It actually started as a mistake done by Olds and Milner. Here's what they were doing. Um, they were sticking electrodes into the brain of rats, into the brains of rats, um, and down into the uh, brainstem, because what they wanted to do was to study arousal centers down in the brainstem I mentioned last time um, are intimately involved in in things like sleep and wake and sort of general level of arousal how do you know if a rat is uh, aroused or not well one of the ways to uh, measure arousal in a rat is just to look at the amount of activity that that rat is emitting a rat that's just sort of sitting there is not very aroused a rat that's running around is presumably aroused Great. So they're going to stick an electrode into the rat's brain and look at general levels of activity. There's a problem that requires a control experiment first. Um, what other than sort of generalized arousal might get a rat to run around? Would you think? Sticking an electrode, <laughs> sticking an electrode in their brain. Um, yeah. Well, we've, uh, why why might sticking an electrode in their brain uh, make them run around? <laughs> Pain. It might hurt, right? You know, if so. Suppose all that happens when you uh, um, turn on the uh, the electricity, you know, to stimulate the brain of the rat is it hurts. The rat's going to run around, but you wouldn't want to. Uh, you wouldn't want to argue that this is a center for generalized arousal. Um, plus, you might not really want to be, you know, hurting your poor rat. So, anyway, here's the experiment that they did. What they did. Um, was they watched the they got electrodes in the rat, and they're looking at the rat, and they only turn the, the the electricity on when the rat's over in this part of the cage. So, turn on the electricity. If it hurts, what does the rat do? Runs around. Runs around, but two to others. Oh, hey, oh, it stopped. I'll wander back over here oh, oh no okay, right everybody knows rats learned this. they knew that this very that nobody had done this with with stimulation of the brain with, with the, the this is a so called aversive learning um that one of the typical ways of doing it is you electrify the floor of the cage. Right, so the rat goes over here, discovers that um, when he puts his little rat toes on the cage floor over here, there's there's you know electric current running through it, and you know, and he's 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 over here. Um, okay, so that's what they did, and so the rat goes over here, and on comes the juice for a little bit, and and the rat doesn't go anywhere, and then the juice goes off, and the rat's wandering around, and 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 the rat comes back over here, juice comes on for a little bit. Rat doesn't go anywhere. In fact, the rat comes back over here. The rat's sort of hanging around over here. Yeah? (laughs) Let's do that again. Turns out that the rat was behaving as though though the stimulation was reinforcing. We could say as though he wanted to be... um, uh, stimulated, but it's a little dicey to talk about what a rat wants or doesn't want, so you can use this more neutral language of reinforcement. The rat was behaving as though um, stimulation of, of the brain was reinforcing. This was a surprise to uh, Olds and Milner. Uh, the next surprise came when they actually uh, looked at where the electro- electrode had gone in this particular rat's brain. That's the mistake part. Uh, it turns out the electrode had bent and um, instead of being um, where they wanted it in the, in, in, the, in the brain stem it was in a chunk of brain known as the lateral hypothalamus at least we think it was in the lateral hypothalamus don't actually know because not only did the electrode uh, bend but they, then they lost the brain um, subsequently um, they did very well for all the mistakes they made here uh, hypothalamus um, so What they did then was to deliberately uh, stick electrodes into the lateral hypothalamus and to set the experiment up in a more formal fashion, beautifully illustrated here by my rat who's got an electrode in his brain, and that's a battery up there. Um, And that's a lever. Now the rat can go off and uh, self-stimulate. He can go and choose. uh, If he pushes on this lever, he gets a little pulse of electricity um, to his brain. And what's he do? Indeed, rats with electrodes implanted in the right bits of the lateral hypothalamus will sit there and work for brain stimulation the way another rat might work to get rat pellets or water if it's thirsty or something like that. Um, and they'll work hard. It, the, uh, uh, the, the, the most dramatic version I can recall reading is a rat who... The, our, our Rats will work... Uh, uh, bar pressing 7,000 times an hour, I think, for uh, uh, um, to you know keep the brain stimulated there. Um, so this this is this is apparently good stuff. Not everything is good stuff. There are chunks of brain where the rat will work actively to turn off the stimulation. So again. In, in this, So turning on the stimulation would be a positive reinforcer. Turning off an aversive stimulation, whether it's electricity to your feet or electricity to the wrong part of your brain, um, that's a negative reinforcer. Um, so you, you know, you, there's, there's current. If you push the button, the current stops. Um, that's good from the rat's point of view. Um, in various surveys of rat brain, it turns out that there are more positive locations than negative locations. I don't know... Um, you know, we don't know if that's true of humans, and we don't know if that means anything. Actually, the study, the the, the study that I noticed this morning, um, uh, that I, I that I was thinking of here, says that there are 60% in this one study, 60% neutral locations. rewarding locations, and 5% aversive locations. Now, the mathematically sophisticated among you will notice that adds up to 95%, um, and neutral, rewarding, and aversive would kind of seem to cover all the possibilities here, so I have no idea what the other 5% of neurons were, were doing. That seems a lot for rounding error or something. Anyway... More pleasant locations than um, than unpleasant locations. Now, around uh, this time, somebody who is a science fiction buff should say, I've heard this before, it shows up in, in one of several uh, uh, classic science fiction stories. The world is full of science fiction stories written by people just like you, which is to say people who heard an introductory psych lecture and thought... I can make a story out of this. Memento is, is, is perhaps the most recent movie example of that. We'll get to that lecture later on in the, uh, um, in the term. Anybody, anybody familiar with the, uh, the, 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 the sci-fi story uh, that's related to, to the rats here? Any of the various sci-fi stories? Mrs. No, not oh, Mrs. Oh wait, listen. Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. What's What's? No. Apart from the fact that 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 Nim stand is is short for the National Institutes of Mental Health and and uh, and, and and they they don't much care for that. Uh, but what wait, what are the rats of Nim doing? Oh no, they're busy taking drugs and getting smart, right? Nah, 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 nah. They're not sitting there stimulating their little selves. Yeah. Yeah okay yeah ter- terminal man sounds right what's terminal man's issue he's his epileptic bits, so can just his brain like or not his epileptic bit or pleasure him. oh yeah and it does give him pleasure yes okay that's that yeah flowers is it? for algernon flowers for algernon no he's doing what, what's he doing he's is he being stimulated, on a rat and he's stimulated. <laughs> oh yeah no but that, he just becomes a super smart rat like the rats of nimwan <laughs> he 's got a different right? I, I, we don 't know how to make super smart rats. we just know how to make rats who work hard on pushing lever the um, The terminal man one is is, is is one of the one of the sci fi examples that I, I know about anyway look the critical issue that gets people writing science fiction stories is suppose we did this to a human would that human uh, could you kill somebody by hooking them up to uh, to self-stimulate their pleasure center, and they would kill themselves. How would they kill themselves? By, you know, sitting there and forgetting to eat, right? Um, well, nobody's ever done this in humans, of course. It's been done in rats. Um, and uh, if you put, uh, if you, if, if you put um, a lever that gives food next to a lever that gives stimulation in, in, in a good spot in the rat's brain um, the rat will sit there and um, uh, d- d- work away on the, on, on the self-stimulation lever um, and uh, at least in some of these studies, we'll every now and then sort of say oh get a little food, okay back over here to the video game stuff, this is really good um, <laughs> Right, this, is what, this is what your parents thought you were doing, right? Yeah. Come on down and eat dinner. Oh, mom, I can't put it on pause. Yeah, anyway. The, uh... Um, would an animal actually kill itself? Uh, Gleitman says that hungry rats will opt for self-stimulation even though it literally brings starvation. And then he cites an article that I went back and read. Um, and, and... The rats uh, in that study didn't starve themselves to death because the, the researchers wouldn't do it, um, pre- uh, presumably because it seemed unethical to actually let a rat starve itself to death. Um, but they will certainly reduce... The, they, you know, they'll, they'll certainly get themselves pretty hungry um, while amusing themselves with the, uh, uh, by stimulating their brain. There was a hand up... Oh, there still is a hand up there. Look at that. Yeah, I heard a story a while ago of a guy who played two games for seven or four hours straight and he died... Uh, I don't don't know the the truth or or, or falsity of... of, So the story is a guy played video games for what was it? 74 straight hours? 74 straight hours in Korea and then he died. Um, Actually the Korea part is is, is good here um, because I have no idea whether this is true one way or the other. It has all the hallmarks of uh, a, a so-called urban legend. Um, it, it, it has a grain of plausibility and is just sort of one step removed from, from checkability, right? It, it's, it's like the Kentucky Fried Breaded Rat, right? Everybody knows somebody else who knows that their cousin got a breaded rat once, or uh, you know, there's, there's whole books of these things. They're great. I don't know. Maybe somebody did uh, manage to play video games till they died. People do all sorts of stupid things. Um, I don't recommend. I don't recommend uh, trying this your, your, yourself. In any case, rats will work very hard um, in order to stimulate different parts of their brain. What is it that they're um, that they're working for? Um, the evidence suggests that they're not just working for some sort of disembodied pleasure, but that they're working for the reward associated with one or the other of um, sort of basic, hardwired, um, innate uh, reward systems that you that the rat comes with and that you come with too. The reason that um, uh, uh, in, in this aspect of the slavery story that you'll work to get the fish if you're the cat um, is that you came predisposed to think that hunger is bad and food is good. This, you know, look, it doesn't take very sophisticated evolutionary psychological theory to think this might be a good idea. Organisms that went into the world thinking that hunger is good and food is bad had many fewer progeny than the ones who thought that hunger was bad and food was good. So it's not desperately surprising that you've got circuitry um, that says... If you're hungry, you wanna go and eat something. And, and the centers that are being stimulated are in chunks of brain that if you mess with them, mess with the rat's ability to regulate its eating. So there's a wonderful picture in Gleitman of a rat with a, a hypothalamic lesion, a lesion in this sort of chunk of brain. Um, the, the, the specific lesion in this particular rat is in a chunk of brain that seems to be important in telling you when you're full. So this rat never knows that he's full. And with the result, he just keeps eating, and so there 's this picture in chapter three of, of a rat on a uh, uh, some of you may have already seen it on on a um, one of those diet scales you know and, and this is, he looks like a furry football he 's sort of <laughs> overflowing the, and, and that 's because he 's got a, a a specific lesion in this little specific chunk of brain. How do we know that that 's what 's going on here well you 've got a rat who 's working a way to to be stimulated in this little particular chunk of brain. Um, and if he... So let, let's take this little chunk of brain. If he's a full rat, if you feed him up, he doesn't work as hard. It's just not as interesting. You know this in, in your own... So, so you like M&M's, let's say. You're willing to put... You know, you're willing to push the lever to get the M&M's, right? You're willing to put the quarters in the machine. Will you do that Forever. No, because eventually you get full and the M&Ms kind of look disgusting. Um, so the same thing happens here. If you, the, the pleasure that the rat is getting is modulated by, um, by satisfying, the, uh, you know, the, 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 thing, the thing about direct electrical stimulation is it gives the sensation of, of the satisfaction without actually satisfying anything. So if you're getting the, oh, the M&M is good thing, without getting the M&M, you can sit there, oh, the M&M is good forever and ever, and, and, and keep working at it. Okay, so that's this little chunk of brain. You go over to this other chunk of brain where the rat will also work, hard and that rat um, doesn't care if he's full that rat cares um, whether he's mated recently so you know this one is 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 part you know this little chunk of brain is presumably related to the reward uh, systems having to do with sex and mating again it doesn't take an evolutionary psych genius to figure out that this would be sensible stuff for um, uh, for a brain to come with organisms that didn't find mating rewarding didn't leave many offspring you know, just didn't work out that well for them and so you know, there's another reward system similarly for thirst um, there, there are separate reward systems okay so in some sense you end up doing stuff in order to light up little pieces of brain or to turn off little pieces of brain that's the sense in which you are a slave to um, to your brain, um, now, you know that only gets you so far because that's fairly simple you know eat food little hunk of brain says you're happy. Um, your behavior is somewhat more complicated than that. Um, how do we get to that more complicated behavior? Well let's stick with the M&M example. how do you get the um, uh, get to the &;ms well you gotta go down to the vending machine and put the money in. And how do you learn to do that? Well, maybe you learn to do that by a chain of associations back to the M&Ms. M&Ms, oh, they're good. Um, Getting M&Ms becomes good in its own right. Somebody gives me M&Ms, that becomes rewarding by association with the fact that I will now get to eat the M&Ms. This machine will give me M&Ms, but only if I give it quarters. So I learn to give it quarters. That's an interesting ring. It sounded like a regular old phone. Um, put, put them on vibrate. That's what I do. Because, let's see. Oh, yeah, it's just about the right time. I should be vibrating any time. Oops, not that one. I, um, my 10th uh, uh, my, uh, grader tends to phone in after school, which is great. Um, the only thing is that after school, two days a week turns out to be here. Um, and it's just not a good time to take a call. Um, Anyway, so, oh, well, so the 10th grader, he likes M&M's. He needs quarters. So he's got to emit behavior that I like, so I'll give him quarters. Right? And so you can see how you could build back from a primary sort of reinforcer, like food is good, to something much more remote, like cleaning my room is good. Why is cleaning my room? If I clean my room, daddy gives me quarters. If, I, if daddy gives me quarters, I take quarters. I put them in machine. Machine gives me M&Ms. I eat M&Ms, and all is good. Right? Um, that's okay, uh, but it, it, it probably doesn't do quite well. The, the, the brain suggests to us that that isn't quite enough for organizing even the feeding behavior of, uh, of a complex organism like us. Suppose that you are um, doing, uh, that that, that, that what gets you to do your complicated sort of behavior um, around feeding is the fact that you're hungry. Oh, chapter three will tell you all about how you know that you're hungry. it's lovely sort of engineering work. You've got little uh, detectors, receptors in the blood. They're doing things like keeping track of blood sugar levels. When those levels drop, chunks of brain become active. Activity there is, uh, is apparently aversive, probably corresponding to what you and I think of as hunger. Um, when you get sugar in, activity there drops. Lovely, beautiful uh, sort of control systems uh, stuff worked out in great detail and discussed in considerable detail in... in, in um, in chapter 3 but suppose you're not living in your food um, right? suppose the, you, 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 the, the, well suppose you're like out on the plains of Africa somewhere and the M&Ms aren't just sitting over there in the vending machine they're running around and you're going to have to hunt them down <laughs> right? if you are sitting around until the blood sugar level gets low enough for unpleasant things to happen in these hardwired chunks of brain um, to make you think, okay, all right, I remember this. M&Ms or wildebeests, whichever it was, they, they're good, I can eat them. To get the wildebeest, i got to go clean my room. Anyway, there's some complicated thing that you've got to do. But if you wait long enough before starting, you may not get it, the, the job done in time. Right? It's going to take you a while to hunt down the, uh, the wildebeest. If you wait till the gas tank is almost empty, you, know, you may find yourself flat out on the plains with, 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 a, with you know, no food. Um, so it would be useful if something got you up and mobilized for activity before you were actually hungry. before you actually were in in, in some sort of desperate need. And the distinction that gets made, and I trust is um, bolded on the, yes, it's down there at the bottom of page two, um, is the distinction between consummatory and appetitive um, behaviors or consummatory and, and, and appetitive motivations. Uh, consummatory ones are the ones we've been talking about so far. Eating M&Ms, that's good. Um, appetitive ones are ones where the, uh, where the act of looking, if you like, um, or getting yourself in a position to consume is itself rewarding. In the case of, of, uh, of food, that might be the sort of thrill of the hunt kind of thing. Uh, Think about your cat, right? Your cat who likes to jump on anything that moves. Why is that? It's because the cat is hardwired to like hunting stuff. It's just fun to grab stuff and kill it. now, that's a useful thing to do if you are a cat-like animal because then there's going to be something around to eat when those blood sugar levels drop and you need to you know, chew on a wildebeest for a while. And it's, um, it's pretty clear that we have similar... Actually, it's pretty clear in yesterday's political news that we have similar sorts of... Um, uh, Circuitry in, uh, in, in, in ourselves. Um, yesterday, the assault rifle, uh, the assault weapon ban expired. Um, Bush spent a lot of time not talking about it. Kerry spent a lot of time saying, "I'm a hunter. I love to hunt. I love to jump on moving things and stuff like that." But I've never done it with an assault weapon. You don't need to use an. Ass- he, he was, he was um, on the. Ass- but he was very big on pointing out that he loves to hunt. Because apparently there's lots of people who love to hunt and go out and, 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 and you know, shoot things and, and sometimes eat things. Um, this is presumably related to, this is presumably a form of appetitive behavior in, in humans. If you don't happen to love to hunt, it doesn't mean that you're missing a piece of your brain. Um, the, uh, another realm of, uh, where appetitive behavior is important is in, um, uh, in, in the sex and Romance department. Right. The if it were not the case that um, that the act of looking for a mate is motivating in its own right. Um, well, you know, that, you know, what are you gonna do? Wait around and, and, and until all of a sudden, I don't know, whatever levels it is drops low enough, and, oh, it's time to mate! And, you know, <laughs> it's just not the way we organize our, it's not the way we organize our behavior. Our social lives suggest... That we find the degree of pleasure in um, in the appetitive aspects of seeking a mate, not merely in the uh, in the consummatory parts of it. So you come with a set of um, uh, of of motivations that get you motivations from the sense of getting you to move um, that seem to, uh, to 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 come with the systems. These can be quite specific. Um, by, uh, by the way, that's the notion of preparedness that I see, or it's related to this notion of preparedness that I see is actually above where it says consummatory and appetitive um, behaviors on, 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 uh, on the handout. Um, you are surprisingly fine-tuned um, in... Uh, by, by, presumably by the history of the species. So for instance, um, you, you're, you're built to, uh, to get away from scary things that are going to hurt you and, 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 and uh, um, that seems reasonable enough. And that can be specific enough to the point that it's easier to get you to be scared of spiders and snakes than it is to get you to be scared of bunnies and chickens. Um, that sounds kind of obvious but there's no obvious reason why in fact one of the famous experiments in this sort of behaviorist tradition has a little baby known to history as Little Albert there's a great film from the 20's of this Little Albert is sitting there he's playing with a little white bunny John Watson founder of American behaviorism sneaks up behind Little Albert with a gong and rings the gong Little Albert goes if it was a cartoon would go straight up in the air um, and is you know scared out of his little Albert gourd, and, and is you know is screaming and crying and stuff like that, and and um and you know it's kind of harsh for little Albert. But then the, the, you bring Albert back, you show him the bunny again. Does he want to play with the bunny? No. Does he want to play with anything that's white and furry, including Santa Claus? Apparently, I seem to recall. Him. Guys with bushy white beards. He, he recovered, by the way. He didn't grow up to be a psycho or anything. Um, but you can train. So you can, you can train somebody to be scared of rabbits. Um, but it's easier to train them to be scared of, uh, of snakes, as if they were prepared um, by the history of the species to be um, to be scared of, uh, of of things like snakes and uh, and spiders. Um, Okay, so you're a slave to the environment because your brain responds in rather specific ways to the environment. But you are um, a lot more complicated than that. Um, Or you, at least, you feel like you're a lot more complicated than something that's just a bundle of sort of engineering responses to glucose level low. Must go find wildebeest. and I want to spend the remainder of the lecture talking about some of those complexities, but, uh, but, but first I, I want to give everybody a chance at least to stand up and, and, uh, and stretch a little bit and uh, fan themselves because it's warm in here. Um. <laughs> Yes, you want your little form right now. Sure. Okay, send this form back, and my uh, I, I trust that means that you can be here at like five of two and four five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not useful after class. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is this is all the information I have. If there's a problem, let me know. But I will. Your name is Chi. Chi. Nice to meet you, and I trust that you'll be happily erasing my boards. Uh, I think out there. Okay, let us reconvene here. Here, here's the deal. Um, I will, I will typically try to be good and and uh, and remember to give you a, a, a you know a chance to sort of stretch your limbs a little bit, um, and and but it'll be a short stretch. So you know if you. Actually, why am I telling you this? It's the guys who thought they were off for ten minutes who are now halfway down the hall to get the M and M's who have the problem. But anyway, um, or the you know the ones who are out looking for wildebeest are really in trouble. Um, you might wonder what the role of emotion is in all this. Clearly, motivation and emotion are are closely related. They both talk about feeling um, a lot. You know that you know there's this feeling of of, of hunger, but but. Um, the emotion part is, um, uh, well, one way to think of it would be as a sort of a, a language, a symbol system, um, that's a shorthand that helps you mobilize, um, your, the way of talking to yourself um, about what resources you might want to mobilize. Oh, I feel fear. That means I should do the following sorts of things. Um, and it helps you generalize from event to event. I feel fear now. I felt fear before. You know, maybe there's some sort of relationship that I ought to be um, uh, Noticing, and perhaps it's uh, one of its most important uses is as a form of communication between people, or between uh, animals more generally. If I'm afraid, let's go. Let's go back to the plains of Africa, um, and switch sides. If I'm a wildebeest and I see the leopard over there stalking through the underbrush, um, I should be afraid. If you're not seeing the leopard, but you're seeing me, and I look afraid, and you're the rest of the wildebeests, you should be afraid too. It's a good idea um, if you pick up on on the uh, on the way that I feel. Now we tend to devalue that a bit because um, you know we, we tend to use verbal communication a lot to uh, to convey information back and forth, and for some things, it's obviously a much more useful. Uh, Technique. Um, I mean, trying to teach psychology by a set of emotional expressions would not. Um, I, I, I can't even conceive of how I would go about doing that. Um, however, we probably overvalue this the the, the, the straight uh, this sort of straight verbal nature of communication, even between humans. Obviously, nonverbal animals are going to have to use some other form of communication. But even among humans, we underrate the value of this. Um, current of emotional um, uh, information transmission. Uh, th- perhaps the clearest example of this is, uh, is email, where um, uh, how many of you at some point have gotten into trouble on email because email has the characteristics of conversation without um, the tone of voice? You, see, you said something that you thought, that, that you meant sarcastically or you thought was funny and somebody else read it as flat prose and they was not amused at all and they were, well, and, 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 and then you got it. Actually, that's the root of, of all these uh, um, and the little smiley faces and all these symbols that I don't know from nothing. Um, whole—you, you all know this. There's Some very elaborate vocabulary of basically emotional tokens, to uh, for your for instant messaging, or for email, because it lacks that emotional tone of voice, and without that, the the, the, the quality of the uh, um, the communication goes down. Um, but so you, you've got you've got emotions as sort of a a, a, a superordinate. Um, language that allows you to talk about motivational states even in the absence of any sort of verbal language. I think you could probably make a convincing argument that uh, basic motivational states exist um, in very very simple organisms. I mean, and, and any any organism has to figure out. Um, has to have, in some sense, the motivation to to feed itself and to reproduce. Um, It's only when you get to more elaborate organisms do you get something that looks like The sort of emotional life that you and I might have, where it's being used as, in a sense, a form of of communication. But look, so far, we're um, still uh, dealing in pretty simple terms here. You know, we've got, you know, sex and reproduction is good, getting eaten by the leopard, that's bad, and so on. Um, Where we want to get... Where we and, and, and where the chapter on motivation, for instance, never gets is you know uh, sex and reproduction good, eternal damnation bad, um, or something like that, or or how do you get from um, you know hunger drives and sex drives to Thou shalt not murder and uh, you know I want to grow up to be a chemical engineer um, or something like that. Um, it's those rather more complicated motivations um, that require um, uh, d- d- more than just uh, d- d- you know feedback loops in the lateral hypothalamus to, to make a make a good story um, now one step to a m- richer account of why we do anything is to broaden the set of motivations um, I have pointed already in the direction of um, uh, uh, of one act of broadening that set um, and that is this notion that if I'm a frightened wildebeest you should be a frightened wildebeest this is the notion that emotions are catching across individuals um, we talk about the, I, I, on, on the handout I, I, I put it as, as empathy and described it as a, a social um, emotion um, and it's a, it's a social emotion in the, in, in the sense that it helps to organize um, social behavior, interactions between people. So, for example, well, uh, let, let's, start with an, let, let's start with a bit of evidence that this comes with the system. That it's not something, I mean, you, you spend a fair amount of time trying to teach people to be more empathic. But the core of it is there from the start. So, how do you know it's there from the start? You take a baby... Here's a baby, here's a bunch of other babies Poke this baby What's this baby do? Cry What do these babies do? They also cry um, Why? You haven't hurt those babies But those babies have in a sense Caught the emotional state of the, uh, of, of the um, other baby Not only do babies catch their emotional, Each other's emotional states But um, You are all here today um, because, um, uh, because of the same sort of empathic reaction. When you were a little pre-verbal slug, and you were um, hungry, what did you do? Yeah, right, you cried, right? That's all you could do. Um, and how did that make your parents feel? <laughs> well, some of you are here today because you were lucky because apparently it made your parents feel angry, and then, um, which it probably did, particularly at at, at at weird hours. Mara's looking at me. And <laughs> how old is the kid? Four and, a half Four and a half months. We we can we can we can check out. Uh, if, if you haven't met Mara, she's the head TA, so she 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 knows everything about the the, the course and what recitation you are in, and we can also use her all term as the official parent person. Uh, at least parent of young, young child type person. Um, she, will, she will confirm that when your baby cries, you want to make that baby stop crying. Fortunately, most parents, the ones who want their genes to make it into the next generation, make the baby stop crying by doing things like feeding it and changing it and stuff like that. If it didn't make you feel bad... If the crying baby wasn't the car alarm of the developmental world, you know, hey, the baby's crying. Oh, that's cool. You know. <laughs> Neat, didn't know the baby could make that noise. Wonder what happens in a little you know. The baby cries, you feel bad, you do something about it. Um and 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 you know that's 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 how you end up a... That's how you end up getting there, Get, getting, you know, getting to uh, the point where you can take care of yourself because somebody else was willing to take care of you at at that point. And, and obviously, again, in nonverbal animals like the rest of them, it's really useful um, if when, you know, you're infant animal is feeling uncomfortable you recognize the need in some fashion and, and, you, um, and you do something about it so in a sense empathy is a sort of a prerequisite for successful, um, successful parenting um, and uh, this empathic catching of fear is, is a useful way to keep yourself alive. If you don't see the danger but somebody else does, um, that's... Oh, and, and um, it's, it's a good... Uh, it's good for keeping you alive in other ways, too. Um, I won't do it, um, but if I were to suddenly decide to make myself throw up, a bunch of you would feel really lousy, right? You know this. By the way, this is one that, that goes away when you become a parent. You can, you can modulate these things over... If, if, if you felt incapacitatingly nauseous every time your child threw up, your child would never make it. Because you just got to deal and clean up. But at this point, if I throw up... You're gonna feel sick. Some of you will throw up. I shouldn't keep talking about it because some of you will start feeling gross just thinking about it. Um, that's also useful. Why? Because if I ate the wildebeest and it was a bad wildebeest, you know, and we're all vultures on the same wildebeest here, if I'm looking kind of sick, you might as well get rid of the wildebeest now because it's just not going to be doing you any good. Um, so this catching business is 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 has um, has its utility. Now, it's not a uniformly good thing because you can catch antisocial emotions just the way you can catch pro-social em- emotions. So when you see seemingly incomprehensible events like how in the world can you explain um, uh, something like gang rape or, or a uh, massacre um, in, uh, in, in a war zone, part of what's going on there is... Um, the same sort of emotional contagion. If one person is in a a murderous rage, um, people around them, around that person, can catch the murderous rage just the way they can uh, catch um, the fear or catch the nausea. Um, It's not just a a sort of a pro-social... Motivation, but empathy does serve the function of organizing larger scale sorts of um, sorts of behavior. Oh, now how does this contagion actually work? How does emotional contagion actually work? Interestingly, part of the sort of reflexive mechanism of it seems to be that um, when you read my emotion, you also mimic my emotion. Um, most clearly seen with facial expression if I smile at you you will smile you may not smile much but I'd be able to pick up if I was recording from your facial muscles I would be able to um, pick up a transient smile flitting across your face why is that important? well, how do you know if you are happy? well, it turns out And this is one of the senses in which feelings, emotions are feelings, is that you go out and you feel yourself and ask yourself, how do I feel? Part of that is to feel your face in effect. You know, how does my face feel? Well, I seem to be smiling. Why would I be smiling? I must be smiling because I feel good because only dumb people smile when they're miserable, right? You know, that, that's oh, unlike, say, well, there are various social circumstances when you might do that. But anyway, it's, it's, it's useful information. Um, you can actually try to demonstrate this. Here's an exercise for the reader, if you like. Um, I've done it as a, a as, as one of the writing assignments for the course in, in various years. It's sort of fun. Take, say, 10 events of about the same duration, say an hour, because that, that works for... Uh, Uh, A lecture, for example. You know, know, lecture, recitation, dinner, a few events, um, study breaks, you know, events that are going to take about an hour. Take ten of them, shuffle them around, put five of them in one pile randomly, five in the other pile. Um, Then deliberately either try to smile or frown through, you know, smile through pile A and frown through pile B. And ask yourself, you can ask yourself a variety of questions, uh, the most obvious being, how do I feel, and and what's the effect on people around me? Um, If you, you know, frown like an idiot, the... the effect may be to, uh, to to make people smile but uh, um, but if you well you know you, you 've done the experiment you were doing it like when you were uh, early adolescence is one of the best times to do this particular experiment you show up at, at, at the dinner table everybody's in a pretty good mood, but you 're not <laughs> by the end of the meal you know that nobody's in a good mood anymore. <laughs> Right? Well, you can still do this. I mean, I'm not sure how ethical it is as an experiment to try out on, on, on your friends at dinner tonight. But if you go to dinner feeling like junk and acting that way, um, you can make everybody else miserable too and isn't that great. Um, but more to the point, for the present point, you can make your, all, that, all that sappy garbage about a smile is your umbrella turn out to be sort of true. Um, and it doesn't even have to be a real smile if you take no that's somebody else's pen I'm not going to do it with somebody else's pen if you take a pen this is an experiment that was was published a few years ago take a pen and hold it like this um, that forces your face into a sort of an idiot smile um, whereas holding a pen like this does not it, force, it actually forces it into a bit of a frown um, if you do this and don't t- I'm already spoiling the control aspect of the experiment you don't tell people um, why they're doing this you just make them do it for a while the people who do th- this feel better than the people who do this. and because the chunks of your brain that are saying how do I feel are walled off and encapsulated enough that they don't know He's smiling. I must, he must feel good. The fact that he's smiling because he's got a pen in his mouth turns out, well, it matters, but it doesn't matter that much. So if you're feeling down, bite on a pen. You'll feel much better about it. Um, the... Um, okay, well, look. So you can get a certain amount of, of work done by broadening the set of, uh, of, of available um, emotions, uh, available motivations that you want to talk about. Um... Why isn't the world a better place if you've got this, you know, this empathy thing going on and you've got this beautifully wired up brain that you're a slave to that's designed to make you eat and mate and do all those sort of good things? Why isn't the world a better place? Why doesn't it work better? Um, I point. Look, I can't solve that in the remaining 12 minutes or so. Um, I've pointed to part of the answer. Just because you catch emotions doesn't necessarily mean you catch good ones. It is also the case that not all of your motivations may be entirely benign. So, for example, what's it got on the handout? It doesn't have on the handout. But um, aggression seems to be um, there. Seems to have deep biological roots to it. Um, it is a um, not unreasonable reaction to a world of limited resources. It's not necessarily a nice reaction to a world of limited resources, but um, you know, if if you are, um, if, if there's a limited number of mates out there, and uh, and you can punch out all the uh, all, all the other guys and grab all um, all the uh, all the women. Um, well, you get to have more progeny than the, the, the guys you punched out. Fortunately, human society is not organized particularly that way. But there are plenty of animal societies that seem to be. Um, elephant seals, you've seen, the, you know, you've, you've seen these guys on, on, on you know, your favorite cable channel, right? They, 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 walk, they, they come up in thousands on the beaches near Antarctica and stuff. And, and you know, these huge male guy elephant seals have like a thousand women... What is a woman elephant seal? I don't know. Anyway, they a thousand female elephant seals in their in their harem, and they have these huge fights over who gets to have a you know. They can't share. They just never went to preschool and learned how to share properly. But part of um, there's certainly enough aggression in human behavior to make it clear that that sort of a motivational system is going to lead to a certain amount of conflict in the world, and it's not all going to work out as, as sweetness and light. People like Freud uh, proposed that there was actually a death wish motivation um, out there. My thanatos uh, is, 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 is Freud's term. Um, I may talk about that more later in the term. Um... So that, that, that's the, the possibility that there are motivations that themselves are not particularly nice, if you like, is one possible reason that the world is is not a, a, a perfect place. But um, perhaps the most useful way of understanding why the world doesn't work out so well necessarily, given all this marvelous... Um, motivational hardware, if you like, that you've got, is that... Um Look, most of the time when we study these things, we're studying a motivation in isolation. You want to study this cat's ability to learn about the puzzle box and, and, and the relation to the motivation of hunger. You take a hungry cat, you put it in a box. The only thing of any interest here is how to get out of the box and get to the fish. Um, you know, the only thing of interest here is, you know, the, 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 there's a rat who's maybe a hungry rat in this case. He's got an electrode now in, in the feeding centers of his brain. And all the other things that a rat might do are just not relevant here. You don't operate in a world like that. You operate in a, in a much more complicated space. I mean, we can cartoon that here. Here's you. Um, you know, if we, we got in the lab, maybe we can, we can uh, just do uh, an, an experiment on when you do or do not eat. But that's not what you're dealing with out in, in, in your... Well, all right, here, yeah, this is a way to, to, to get to this question. How many of you have ever eaten something when you weren't hungry? Well, what's the matter with you? Right? You know, I just told you, you got this elaborate stuff. I've already erased the lateral hypothalamus. you got a brain full of circuitry designed to make you eat when you're hungry and not to eat when you're not hungry. And, and you, you don't look like you know, that, that, that furry uh, football with a lesion in your brain. So what's your problem that you're, you're eating when you're um. um when you're not hungry. Um, well, all right, let, let's, let's think about this in sort of metaphorical terms. Let's imagine a situation um, where there are lots of different possibilities pulling on you. Suppose you're at some sort of a social gathering of some sort. There are lots of possible things, lots of motivational systems at work at any one, um, one time. I mean, one of the things you could probably do is eat. Um, uh, maybe there's the possibility for fighting. Um, you know, mating. Whoops. Uh, sleep. Study. You know, you could you could do all 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 sorts of you know run. You could do all sorts of stuff, and all of these things, each of which may have its own beautiful. Um, hardwired core and it's elaboration from a lifetime of learning, all of these things are pulling on you at once. And, and, and well, you know, all right, so maybe the sleep motivation and the study motivation are, 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 are pretty weak at any given moment, but, you know, let, let, let's suppose that there's pretty strong <laughs> drives in, 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 in this direction. Um, okay, so if you're sitting in this in this exciting vector field, where's the resultant? Right? There. Now, I'm not proposing this as a serious model of, of why you might eat when, well, I am proposing it as, as I'm not proposing it as, as, as a, as a, as a theory, serious mathematical model of why you might eat, but I'm, I'm proposing it as a serious metaphor. That you might engage, and, and it's going to be much more complicated than, than, than this, right? I mean, part of the reason, it's not just that there's, you know, want to mate, want to fight, oh, I think I'll go eat instead, but want to mate, you know... Here now <laughs> can't do that. But there, there's, um, but there, you know, there's those brainstem chunks of general arousal. Yeah. Well, I, I've sort of got a lot of activity here that I I, I got to do something. So you end up with sort of displacement activity. The problem is that the world is a complicated place, and um, the if you were ever going to reduce this to math, it's going to have a lot of variables in. Um, uh, it's going to end up with a lot of variables in the equation. Most of us manage to do okay. We eat when, uh, uh, when we don't want, but that's all right. Later on in the course, you end up talking about the, you know, perhaps the people where you find that they're fighting too much or something like that. Um, no lecture Thursday, just to reiterate. I will sign all those lovely ad drop cards. I'll see you next week.